Well, warm Christian greetings to all of you. I greet you in the name of the conquering King and the ascended Lord, Jesus Christ. It's so good to have uh, many of you here that are visiting this morning. Welcome. I trust that you can uh, feel, feel at home here with us and feel the presence of God with us and feel encouraged in your spiritual life today. This past week, there was a very significant religious holiday that was observed, at least by some. Now, it's a day that is often uh, overlooked or maybe forgotten, even by many Christians. And in fact, it's, it's not even noted on many calendars. That is Ascension Day. Now, for those of us who have Amish employees, we always remember it. <laughs> we, re- we remember Ascension Day. And I trust that it's not the only thing that, that triggers our thoughts. But, you know, it's impossible to overstate the importance of Good Friday when Jesus Christ, our Savior, gave his life on the cross for me and for you. It's impossible to overstate the importance of Easter Sunday when Jesus Christ rose victoriously from the grave, defeating death. And as believers, we consider these events to be foundational to our faith. And we don't forget them. Yet the events of the next 40 days, culminating with Jesus ascending into the heavens, I believe they bear tremendous significance. And I believe this morning that they are also vital to our faith. Now, it is certain that Luke, the writer considered the ascension to have significance, very significant importance, because not only did he end his gospel with it, but he began his second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, with it. And so I invite you to Acts chapter 1 for a text this morning. I say he began his second volume with it. We find the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1. And I'm thankful that we do. Because if we wouldn't have the ascension of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, Acts would start with a business meeting. (laughs) And, And how fun would that be? Okay. But here, the book of Acts starts with a real bang. As Jesus Christ ascends up into heaven, back to his Father. Verses 1 through 12. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You see all all the information we've gleaned already. (laughs) You know, after Jesus died and rose again, uh, we already have a running commentary of what he's doing. 
verse 4. And being assembled together with them, that is, the disciples, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power, or he is set by his own authority. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. Wow. Uh, some beautiful words of Scripture here. Some powerful words of Scripture. Some revealing words of Scripture. I've titled the message this morning, Proclamations of the Ascension. Proclamations of the Ascension. What I'm saying here this morning is that the ascension of Jesus Christ proclaims some truths to us. Now, some interesting notes before we move on. One is that Luke, the writer of, of Acts, and the writer of the Gospel of Luke, he was a doctor, and he, as you understand, was a prolific writer. But Luke traveled with Paul, the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, and Luke was documenting the stories of the early church. He was traveling along, writing down the stories. Aren't you so glad that he did? Wow. But I believe that he wrote his gospel in around 61 to 62 A.D. And then he wrote the Acts of the Apostles, the stories of the early church, later, somewhere between 63 and 70 A.D. But you notice here in verse 1 that it was written to a man by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus. Now hold your finger there and turn back to Luke chapter 1 and notice how he begins his gospel message here in Luke chapter 1. So Luke is volume 1, the gospel. Acts is volume 2. But in, in chapter 1 of Luke, we read, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, he says, okay, so many have, many have taken on the task of writing down the accounts of Christ. Many have done that. 
Even as they, de- they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. He says, I am writing in order, verse 4, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And so we take from how he referred to Theophilus, we take Theophilus to be a, a man of, of high authority. We're not sure who he was. We know very, very little about this man, Theophilus. But he seems to be a man of much authority. Uh, perhaps he was a Greek. But Luke here says, the purpose for writing these accounts to you Oh, excellent Theophilus, is that you would come to know and experience the truth. That word that thou mightest know, know, epignosco, that is, it implies a living participation in the truth. It's an experiential knowledge. It's not just simply hearing of something reading about something, but it implies experiencing it in their life. And that was Luke's goal in writing to this most excellent Theophilus, whoever he was. And so that's how the gospel begins. We move into the Acts of the Apostles, volume 2, and we have once again, he's referring back to the gospel, but he's moving on from there. Now, we're talking this morning about proclamations of the ascension. What does Jesus' ascension to heaven proclaim to us today? And I suggest three points this morning. It proclaims power. It proclaims position. And it proclaims promise. Power, position, and promise are the proclamations we find of the ascension. The ascension of Jesus Christ proclaims the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus referred to the coming of the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. Notice verse 4. He says, Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which I've been talking about. I've told you much about this, he says. But he refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. And and in Luke 24, where he ends his gospel, ending with the ascension, he refers once again to the coming of the Holy Spirit as the promise of my Father. He says, wait in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of my Father until you be endued with power from on high. Now, let's turn for a moment to John chapter 16. And I want you to notice here, this is one of the places where Jesus was talking to the disciples. He was preparing them for what would come next. He was preparing his disciples for the time when when he would leave, when he would go back to be with his father. And the words that he spoke were rather bittersweet to the disciples. They were bitter because Jesus said He's leaving them. It was their best friend. The one they spent all their time with. 
It was their, not just their best friend, but it was their savior, their Lord, their master, their teacher. And he says, I'm leaving you now. But these words were also sweet because with these words of parting came words of promise. And we'll find that here in just a moment. Verse 5, John 16. Jesus says, but now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Now listen to what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. <laughs> Do you understand the certainty of, of what Jesus Christ is saying there? He said, if I do not go back to my Father, you will not receive the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And then notice what he says in verse 22. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. So Jesus said, dear disciples, dear friends, I am leaving for a while, but I will come again. I will see you again. But while I am away, I will give to you the gift of my Holy Spirit. He refers to him here as the comforter. And what a, what a very fitting term for him, especially in this setting, because the disciples were sorrowing. They were grieving. Put yourself in their shoes. Think about uh, when, you know, just in this life, in your experience here, when someone is leaving that you, that you dearly love. And you won't see them for a long time. And it brings grief to your heart. It, it brings sorrow to us. Well, I say the ascension of Jesus Christ is significant because it ushered in the continuing presence and power of Jesus Christ through the work of His Holy Spirit. So even though Jesus Christ was leaving, He was sending His Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in another place that greater things than these, speaking of his own works, greater things than these will you do. Why? Because I go unto my Father. Now, it's hard for us to, to understand all of that. But he was pointing to the miraculous, supernatural, Holy Spirit-filled power that would be sent on, baptized on, as it were, all believers. There's a power there. Now, the return of Jesus Christ to heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit had a very defining impact on the disciples. It seemed like it, it brought greater clarity and greater focus to their lives. It seemed like they finally were able to grasp a greater perspective than what they had before. Now, they understood to a point why Jesus came. They understood to a point what his mission was about. They had heard him say that he is leaving, 
But they were still confused. They were still confused about this thing of his kingdom. What is this kingdom going to look like? What part will I play in this kingdom? And they had questions that were swirling around this subject of the kingdom of God. In fact, as we move back to Acts chapter 1 here, you know, Jesus is talking to the disciples as he is gathered together with them. We find this starting at verse 4. But he's talking to his disciples about the Holy Ghost who he's going to send. He's going to send the Holy Ghost. And the power of the Holy Ghost, the promise of the Father. And we're talking about the Holy Ghost. And, and in the middle of that conversation, as they're gathered together, the disciples, they, they insert this question. You can, you can see that they're still confused, partially confused at least, about, about this kingdom. And so they kind of butt in and say, well, but Lord, at what time will you restore the the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus is like, fellas, fellas, you have, to, you have to let that go. That's not what this is all about. You have to forget this thing about a physical kingdom. We're talking about a spiritual kingdom. But you see here where they were still at. They were still trying to, to understand what this was all about. I see a group of disciples who went from being confused to being confident. I say the ascension of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit brought a confidence, brought a power, brought a greater vision and clarity and purpose, all of that, to the disciples. You see, Jesus was leaving. They could no longer just sort of go along on his coattails, as it were. But now there was work for them to do. They had to carry out the work of the Father. They had to do this work of, of evangelizing and preaching and baptizing and all of that. Jesus wasn't there. They couldn't just say, well, Jesus will take care of it. No, it was on their shoulders. But Jesus made it clear that you cannot do this work without the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, He says, don't even start. Don't go anywhere. Don't leave town until you have received the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Makes me wonder this morning how much of what I'm doing how much of what you're doing is through the power of the Holy Spirit? Because if it's not through the power of the Holy Spirit, it will not be eternally effective. I wonder if God were to move, remove the Holy Spirit from this congregation, would we know it? Would others know it? Or would we just continue to do our stuff? Would we just continue to go through the motions? Would we just continue to, to go through all of our progr church programs and all of that? Would, would we know it? What would happen if God chose to remove the Holy Spirit from this place? 
Jesus made it clear that they are not to go anywhere, they are not to begin this work without the Holy Spirit. Once again, turn back to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and notice the words there that Jesus gives them before he ascends. Verse 47, breaking in here, Jesus says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's work to be done. He's saying, here is your job description. This is what I want you to do after I leave. He goes on to say, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So here is your, here is your job description. This is what you have to do. I'm calling you to do this, but don't start before you receive the Holy Ghost. Now, back here in Acts chapter 1 again. You'll find that we're flipping back and forth some this morning between Acts chapter 1, Luke 24, and Mark 16. Those are the three accounts. Acts is the longest, Luke is in the middle, and Mark is really short. Okay, but we're going to flip back and forth a little bit and pull some nuggets from those three different accounts. All right, but back in Acts chapter 1 again, Let's jump in here in verse 5 where Jesus says, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And we know it wasn't many days hence because in our Bibles it's the very next page. Okay, It happened pretty quickly. Not many days hence. Now move down to verse 8. But ye shall receive power. Once again, this is a different word than the power that we end, verse 7. That's more of an authority. This here is power. This is the Greek word dunamis, which we get our word dynamite from. Literally, it means means force. But ye shall receive force. Ye shall receive energy, spiritual energy. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. That's the Greek word mortus. That's where we get our word martyr from. Now, this Greek word mortus, uh, we, it's, often, it's often seen as witness or witnesses in our Bible, although in the book of Revelation, we find it to be martyrs. Different times it's, it's, it's spelled out, rendered martyrs. Ye shall be witnesses. I want you to think about that, Okay? We're talking about disciples of Jesus Christ. We're talking about people who have seen the Lord. People who have experienced Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus says, ye shall be witnesses. Similar to that of a martyr. Unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And ye shall receive power. I want you to notice, dear people, the order that that comes in. Jesus said, ye shall receive power. So there is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which leads to 
which produces power in your life. And then ye shall be witnesses unto me. Okay? Holy Spirit indwelling. Power, witnesses. It doesn't work the other way around. You cannot expect to be a witness of Jesus Christ. In fact, you will never be able to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ if you are not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll never make it. And so you have to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit to be faithful and for your life to even tell of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit isn't working within you, there will not be a true telling of Jesus. And ye shall be witnesses. Speaking of, of someone who, who has heard and seen. Someone who has experienced Jesus Christ. Now if you were to stand in a courtroom setting. What the judge wants to hear from you. What the jury wants to hear from you. Is not your thoughts about what happened. They want to know what you saw and what you heard. That's what makes you a witness. Okay, that's, that's what makes you an effective witness. They simply want to hear what you have seen and what you heard. They want to know the facts. What did you experience? It's not some running commentary of what you think about a certain matter. And the same is true. Dear people, if you have seen Jesus... If you have experienced Jesus, if you have felt Jesus in your life, if you have been changed, then this is not a command. This is a certainty. You will be a witness. And so I want you to understand that, that Jesus wasn't saying here that you're going to have to be a witness after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. He wasn't stating a command. He was stating a certainty. You will be. Your life will speak of Jesus. Your life will tell of Jesus. It's not something that is forced. It's something that flows. Because it stems from your experience. You've been changed. And we see here in Acts chapter 2, and we won't spend the time to look at this, but we see in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Ghost was then poured out upon the people. And it, the result it produced was somewhat humorous. And in fact, the people said, you guys drunk or what? And Peter's like, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. What do you mean we're drunk? No, no, I'll tell you what we are. Go back to Joel, okay? And so he, he quoted from Joel. This is what's happening right now. Joel prophesied it. <laughs> and it's powerful. What, well, you can read it later today. But, but the, the description of what was happening there was spirit power. Life-changing power. People were being changed. Okay, let's move on. So the ascension proclaims power. It proclaims Holy Spirit power. Secondly, the ascension of Jesus Christ proclaims position. It proclaims the position of Jesus Christ. Now, I mean this in several different ways. First of all, the return of Jesus Christ back to heaven proved His deity. It proved His deity. It proved that Jesus was the Son of the Father. He wasn't merely a Son of the Father, but Jesus Christ was the Son of the Father. I say the ascension proved that. Now, although Satan knows the truth, he has always been on the attack to discredit the deity of Jesus Christ. 
in Luke chapter 4, we have recorded where Jesus was, was healing many people that, that were diseased, people that had ailments. He was healing many from, from demons and from devils, healing people spiritually. And Luke records that as the devils were coming out of people, they would say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. you imagine that? The devils knew exactly who he was. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And earlier in that passage, we read about the temptation of Jesus. And, and there we see the assault. The devil's assault against Jesus. He said, if thou be the Son of God. If thou be the Son of God. Make this, make this happen, do this, if thou be the Son of God. And so in that same passage, we see, we see the assault, we see the confession, but I say that the devil knows the truth. The devil knows who Jesus Christ is, but there is a constant attack to discredit his deity. Now, the, the religious leaders of the day, they also joined into this assault Constantly denying that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God's son. And Jesus consistently maintained his position, teaching the people about where he came from, why he was here, what his mission was on this earth. He constantly maintained his position and taught the people about his relationship with the Father. And then God the Father confirmed his relationship to the Son different times as he spoke audibly from heaven. I find this so heartwarming. There was this audible communication at least three times that's recorded between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And so the first was at his baptism. When Jesus was baptized of John, God the Father said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And then secondly, at his transfiguration, once again, God the Father beamed down, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then thirdly, in, in the days just preceding the cross experience, there in John chapter 12, it's recorded where Jesus was surrendering to the will of the Father. He was surrendering to the will of the Father once again. And he said, Father, glorify thy name. And God the Father beamed down from heaven and said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Isn't that heartwarming? Isn't, isn't that so convincing that there was a relationship there? And I say, the devil has been attacking that. The religious leaders of the day were denying that. Turn just to one verse in John chapter 3. I find this, thinking about the deity of Jesus Christ, I find this so fascinating. Here Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3 verse 13, listen to what Jesus says. He says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven but that he came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Any more questions? <laughs> okay. I mean, Jesus said, I came from heaven, 
I'm going to heaven, and guess what? I'm in heaven. Figure that one out. <laughs> Figure that one out. From heaven to heaven, in heaven, all the same time. <laughs> I say, clearly proving the deity of Jesus Christ. So, when Jesus literally ascended to heaven, it was living proof that He was who He said He was. Uh, he had come to do the will of the Father. And He had faithfully fulfilled His mission. And He was returning home. Now, I say He was returning home, and all of this was in the context of doing the will of the Father. Jesus was not about doing His own will. Jesus did not have an agenda, but He was in obedience to the will of the Father. And when He was done, the Bible does not say that He decided, I'm out of here and I'm gone. No, it doesn't. But every time when the, trans, uh, when the ascension is referred to, it says, well, Mark says He was received up. He was received up. Luke says he was carried up. In Acts, we read he was taken up. Actually, four times in, in Acts 1, we read he was taken up. Received up, carried up, taken up. Who did it? I say, God the Father said, Come on, son, well done. I am pleased with you. Mission accomplished. Come back to your home. Isn't that beautiful that all the while Jesus Christ was in submission to the will of the Father? I just find that fascinating. He was in submission. He was surrendered to the will of the Father. His Father had put Him there. His Father was now taking Him back. And what a royal reception that must have been. What a homecoming that must have been. And I would venture to say that there has never been a sweeter reunion in all the world than that homecoming when Jesus Christ the Son went back to His home and met with the Father. Can you imagine the beauty of that? Can you imagine the embrace? Can you... You know, we, we can put it in our physical imagination. I'm sure that doesn't do it justice. But yet, what a homecoming that must have been. Well, we can take heart in the truth this morning that Jesus' homecoming prepares the way for our homecoming when one day we go to be with Him forever. In fact, there in John chapter 14... We read that where we read that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And after I do that, then I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. What a homecoming that will be. But I say that Jesus' ascension to the Father paves the way for ours one day. Now, as we think about the position, Jesus' position, Another way to look at it is that the ascension of Jesus proclaims his current position of honor and authority. It proclaims his current position of honor and authority. And here we'll move to Mark chapter 16, where Mark gives one verse, perhaps two, 
about the ascension of Jesus. You know, Mark did everything fast. He often talks about uh, immediately this happened, immediately that happened, quickly that happened. And I, I guess Jesus went really fast, too, because he doesn't say much. So uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 19 So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. He sat on the right hand of God. Now, we have that phrase, sat on the right hand of God. And in some weeks ago, when I was preaching from Hebrews, I expanded on that a little bit more because we also have a similar uh, thought there in Hebrews 1. But to sit at the right hand of God is a place of honor, is a place of power, is a place of authority. And also to sit down on the right hand of God means that the work has been finished. I'm done. I've accomplished all that you had for me to do. You've heard of the term, a right-hand man. We use that a lot. This guy's my right-hand man. What does that mean? That means he carries out my wishes. He is my top guy. He knows my heart. He knows how I want it done. I can leave, and he will take care of it. He's my right-hand man. I couldn't do without him. Well, that's, we get it from probably from this. He sat on the right hand of God. So, historically, to be seated at the right hand of a king was considered the place of highest honor. There was no greater place you could be. So Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he was exalted at the highest place of honor in the whole universe. Philippians 2 verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. That's everything. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, thirdly, in this point here of the position of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus to heaven provided the way for us to have an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. I say it provided a way for us to have an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. You see, Jesus is constantly before the Father ministering on our behalf. He's ministering on our behalf. <laughs> I, I find this so beautiful and it just, it just touches my heart. Because we, we read here how that when Jesus ascended the Father, he sat on the right hand of the Father. But in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin, and they're beginning to stone him just before he died, he looked up and he said, I see the heavens open. And the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> he is standing at the right hand of the Father. Do you understand what that means? I say Jesus Christ is ministering on our behalf currently in heaven. 
And so it is the picture of when we are in trouble, when we are in dire straits, when we are struggling, Jesus Christ, he gets up from his seat and he stands there and he says, you can do it. And he's pleading before the Father and he's reaching down and he is interacting with you and me in a very intimate way. He's no longer sitting on the job, but he's standing. And he speaks of action. So beautiful. So beautiful. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Greek word, huped. On our behalf, for us. Let us just quickly note some of what God is doing for us through the person of Jesus Christ today. He is our high priest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. He is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we obtain mercy and find grace to help In time of need. He is our faithful high priest. He is our intercessor. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I say Jesus Christ is our intercessor. Romans 8 verse 26. Likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the spirit itself maketh intercession for us. With groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You see, three times we have it. Verse 26. It says, the Spirit makes intercession for us. Verse 27, He makes intercession for the saints. Verse 34, it says that He is making intercession for us. On our behalf, He is standing before the Father pleading for us. (laughs) And if God be for us, who can be against us, right? Amen. Jesus Christ is also our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, a mediator is a go-between. A mediator is the middleman. A mediator is, is one who brings about friendly, friendly relationships between two or more estranged people. He's, he's making peace. That is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ who is standing between us and God the Father, the righteous judge, and He is our mediator. He is making peace 
between us. He is our advocate. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is our advocate. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Someone has put it this way that Jesus Christ is our mediator when we pray, and he is our advocate when we fail to. <laughs> it makes you think a bit. I found that interesting. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Praise God for that. We could look at another we won't for sake of time, but Jesus Christ is also the head of the church. In the last part of Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about his exalted place as head of the church. And in fact, in Mark chapter 16... I read the one verse that talks about the ascension. Well, the next verse says, and so that the people went everywhere preaching the word, the Lord working with them. You understand what that means? He is the Lord of the church, but he is not lording over the church. Jesus Christ, our heavenly father, is working with us. We are laborers together in the work of the church. And that's powerful. They went everywhere preaching the word, the Lord working with them. That's an example for us as leaders, right? Lastly, then, the ascension proclaims the promise of his second coming. The ascension of Jesus proclaims that Jesus is coming again. And the ascension of Jesus sets the pattern for his return. Let's end here in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 again. Notice that the ascension of Jesus sets the pattern for his return. Verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And so, I want you to notice how the ascension sets a pattern for Christ's return. How did he go? Well, he went literally. He literally was taken up. This was not a dream, okay? He didn't just vanish like he had in the few times in the 40 days before that. They were standing there. He literally went up. So he went up literally. He went up bodily, okay? He went up visibly. He went up publicly. Okay? This wasn't just one man that saw him, because then you have problems. Do we trust this guy? I mean, like, is he all there? No, this happened in a public setting. A number of people vouched. He went up. <laughs> in fact, he was just blessing us. <laughs> and lastly, he went up in the clouds. He went up in the clouds. 
And the promise that the men in white gave the disciples is that one day this same Jesus will return just like he went. Does that not give you hope or what? I mean, that that gives us a lot of details about what to look for. But I say how fitting that King Jesus should return in the clouds. It says that he went in the clouds. And there's numerous scriptures, and we won't look at them for sake of time, but there's numerous scriptures that say he will return in the clouds with power and great glory. I say how fitting it is for King Jesus to return the clouds because throughout the Bible, the clouds were often an expression of God's power and glory. Like in the Old Testament when the pillar of cloud guided the people through the desert. It's a sign of God's power and glory. And he's going to return in the clouds. How fitting, I say, for King Jesus to come that way. Well... The ascension proclaims the power of the Holy Spirit. It proclaims the position of Jesus Christ. And it proclaims the promise of his second coming. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's have a song.